0: Okay, let's pray. Father, this morning I covet again the spirit of teaching that I would teach, I would unfold, I would speak clearly that which is written. So, Holy Spirit, rise up and allow this miracle to happen and rise up in all of our hearts to hear with our hearts and not just our minds, but to think clearly and to feel about it appropriately. To the glory of Your name. Amen. We saw last week that Jesus taught, you must be born again, or you will not enter the kingdom of God. In other words, unless the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates you, raises you spiritually from the dead, you will never believe the Gospel and cling to Christ and be saved. Jesus goes on in His earthly ministry to say, wait for the promise Of the Holy Spirit whom I will in the future send to you. Then the day of Pentecost after Jesus rose and ascended. The day of Pentecost comes and He sends the Holy Spirit. He pours out the Holy Spirit. So today, which is the fourth day week in this series titled, The Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit, before we get into the book of Acts next week about the Holy Spirit's outpouring, there's an elephant in the room that I think ought to be addressed first, and that is this. What about all those people who were born and lived and died before Christ came? before the day of Pentecost, before the Holy Spirit was poured out. What about all those people we read about in the Old Testament? Was the Holy Spirit operating, working in any way before Christ came? Was He working then? As He works through people and in people now in the church age, we saw last week that being born of the Holy Spirit that is indwelt by the Spirit is what produces faith in order to be saved. Follow me? If that's true, was David saved? Was Abraham saved? Was Abel, Jeremiah, Isaiah saved? Or were they saved some other way other than through the cross of Jesus Christ and their spirits in this life being born again by the Holy Spirit? That's our question. And the book of Acts is the context for that big question I'm asking this morning. After Jesus died, paid the price, was raised from the dead, right before He ascended, you pick up in Acts chapter 1, starting with verse 4. And while staying with them, His disciples, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait For the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Still future. And then you open up to chapter 2 of Acts, and we read, When the day of Pentecost arrived, And in that day, Peter preaches publicly, in the open, and he explains what that was that happened, saying in verse 16 of chapter 2, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. So here's Peter. He says, this giving, outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise. Jesus has come. He's paid the price. He's been raised from the dead. He has now ascended to the Father. And now this, on this day, Pentecost, He sent the Holy Spirit. Now, during this period, between Jesus' first coming and in the future, His second coming, is the age of the Holy Spirit. But what about all those people who lived before this outpouring of the Holy Spirit? Was the Holy Spirit here? Was He operating among the people of the Old Testament? Ronnie says, yes. And she's right. How else would the Old Testament saints, that is, believers... Be an example for us New Testament, post-Christ, post-Pentecost Christians. And they are our examples. When you open up to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, chapter 11, we get this long list of Old Testament persons who are examples of faith. By faith, Abel. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. By faith, Noah. And on and on and on. And we know from last week that it is impossible to have that saving faith unless a person is born again. And therefore it is impossible for them to, To please God unless they're born again. Isn't that how the chapter 11 of Hebrews begins? Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Well, how are they going to have that? We saw last week the answer. The Holy Spirit comes into their hearts and raises them spiritually from the dead. Produces faith. Now they're pleasing to God. And Paul, let us know we saw last week in Romans 8, verse 8, that... If you walk in the flesh without the Spirit's influence there, you cannot please God, which must mean you cannot have faith. And so as we open up to Hebrews chapter 11, here's this example. Adam and Eve, the fall happens, right? And then their fallen, sin nature son, Abel, (laughs) pleases God. offered a better sacrifice. It's not because his sacrifice was a blood sacrifice and Cain's his brother was a vegetable. But it was because Abel was born again and therefore had a heart for God. The Holy Spirit go back to last week's sermon came into him and this natural godless God-hating, bent of Abel's, was changed. Because he had a new heart now by the Spirit. And so that's why Hebrews eleven four 4 says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Now, just for a moment, I want you to turn to Romans 11. I know we're going to get into the weeds just a little bit, but I want you to think with me here. As you turn to Romans 11, the chapter, Paul begins it this way, saying, Has God rejected His people? The Jews. In other words, Paul's asking, does the fact, when he's writing this at around 58 AD, does the fact that many Jews were not born again, and did not have saving faith, does that fact mean that no Jews are being that's what he's asking. So let's read it. I ask then, has God rejected his people, Israel, Jews? Answer, no. By no means. Here's his argument. For I myself am an Israelite, the descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Okay, stop. Paul has just said, of course he hasn't. Look at me. I'm a Jew. I am exhibit A. I am born again. I've come to saving faith. I'm one of them. He's not the only one. But he's saying, I'm one of them. Now you might say, that doesn't answer our question yet. Because we want to know, here's Paul. He's post Christ. Post the day of Pentecost. 20 years in at this point. What about those who came before And that's exactly where Paul goes next. Read on. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? 800 years before Christ now. Do you not know what the Scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life. Boo-hoo. But what? Is God's reply to him. Quote, Elijah, I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So, too, Paul says, at the present time in AD 58, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So, Paul says, Israel, yes as a whole during the Old Testament period, were hard-hearted, were unregenerate, not born again, unbelieving, unsaved, without the life of the Holy Spirit dwelling in the majority of them. Yet, all through that period of the Old Testament, there always was a remnant. There always was a portion of Israel, of persons of the nation of Israel who were born again, indwelt by the Spirit, saved for eternity. Now, I'm going to say the same thing, sorry, in different ways. Slowly, here's a big picture now of what I'm trying to say. So we're going to go back again, get the big picture. Jesus comes on the scene, preaching, "The kingdom of God is at hand. It's here," and he means, as we have seen through the Book of Luke, he means the presence of God reigning, savingly over souls is here. You've got to get that. Because there are people who are not in the kingdom. The unsaved are not being reigned over by the king in this way, savingly. He says, it is now in my presence, Jesus says, the kingdom has arrived. Does that mean that God was not king or not reigning savingly at all before Jesus arrived? Because that's the question. Does it mean that God the Holy Spirit was not in the earth regenerating hearts and filling hearts with His Spirit and saving them from their sins? The answer is no. It doesn't mean that at all. But it means something like this. The way that God was ruling in His kingdom and by the Spirit In the Old Testament, pre-Christ, pre-Pentecost, quietly, not flamboyantly, with a particular people, mainly. Jesus is saying, now with the coming, my coming as the Messiah, that was in portion then, is now ready to explode. The kingdom will be here in a way unprecedented. God ruling and reigning savingly by His Spirit over hearts is here in a way unprecedented because I, the King, Jesus says, the Christ has come and with my inauguration, coronation, as King, things change. He ups the so to speak. The power, the presence, the extent of the reign of the king. See, in 1000 B.C., God promised King David that one of his descendants will sit on the throne and reign forever and ever and ever. And then the rest of the Old Testament throughout just assumes this and anticipates this coming of The King. And then one day, John the Baptist pops on the scene, preaching. Behold, the Kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. And then, this is Him, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The King arrives. Jesus ushers in officially, officially, the presence of the Kingdom. The now, not yet. And to have the ceremony, that pomp and circumstance, he says, guys, I know that you guys are all confused about everything that's happened. Now I've been teaching you for five weeks post-resurrection. I'm still now, here: pomp and circumstance, ceremony, graduation, coronation. It's going to happen. Wait in Jerusalem, and it's going to be clear. Wait in Jerusalem until I send the power from on high. The Holy Spirit being poured out. But before that happened, before the official coming of Christ and the inauguration of the King and the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33, there was always a portion or a remnant of persons who were born again, who were indwelt who were filled with God the Holy Spirit and thus saved from their sin. Now, at this point, some would object, what are you talking about? How can you say that? Jesus said, the kingdom of God now has arrived. He said, I have not yet sent the Holy Spirit, but I'm going to. So how can you say that before Christ came, there were those who were in the kingdom of God in the Old Testament? There were those who were affected by, infilled by, indwelt by the Holy Spirit before Jesus him. How can you say in the light of what Jesus says in Luke chapter 16 verse 16 the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone is forcing his way into it or Matthew 11.11, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist those texts seem to refute what I have said. My answer to that is that Jesus is not saying that John the Baptist as a person was not in the kingdom. He's not saying that John the Baptist as an individual person was not born again and indwelt by the Spirit. Actually, Luke, is clear. It says He was filled with the Spirit from His mother's womb. But Jesus here is speaking in redemptive, historical, timeline categories. The King was promised to come. And now He's here. And John the Baptist is the one who introduces Him when it comes to Just picture a large timeline of God working in history. Some things happen before others. And so, John personally, like Abraham, like Abel, like David, like Jeremiah, they all were as individuals in the kingdom of God, being ruled and reigned reigned over by God savingly. By the Holy Spirit. But, because of the redemptive timeline before Christ, after Christ, they lived in the era of promise. That's what Jesus is referring to. They lived in the era of the promise of the kingdom of God coming, the promise of the Messiah coming, and not in the era of fulfillment. I'm going to use a couple more biblical terms to try to show you the same thing. And those are the terms Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Old Covenant is before Christ comes on the timeline of redemptive history. Jesus said... And we will celebrate this again this morning. This represents my blood. The blood of the new covenant. What are you talking about, Jesus? He's talking about what was prophesied in the Old Testament. The difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that in the Old Covenant, God the Holy Spirit did not invade human hearts to cause them to be born again. He did not come into the human hearts in the old covenant in order to cause them to see and taste that the Word and God's treasure of promises are good to their soul. The promise of the new covenant is exactly that. The p- difference between the Old Covenant is that in the Old Covenant, God says, Love Me! And He leaves you to your natural state. In the New Covenant, God does pour out His Holy Spirit in order to change the hearts of all New Covenant persons. Okay, hang with me. Listen to how it's said in the law. In Deuteronomy twenty nine two to four. It's right there. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes. Just think about the miracles and Pharaoh and being delivered from slavery and forty years now of God's miracles. And you know the story, don't you? As a whole hard heartedness, rebellion again and again. You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. Verse 4, But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear and then hundreds of years later God sends his prophet Jeremiah to prophesy in Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 33 behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a here it is new Covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah. Hear Him, hear it. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. No, 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 no. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the new covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Hear the difference. Now, here it is. Quote, I will put My law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they will be My people. A changed heart is The New Covenant. See, the difference between the old covenant and the new covenant is not that the new covenant does not have commands. It has lots of commands. Like love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. How do you do that? Well, start with the Ten Commandments. Don't steal from them. Don't commit adultery and put that woman in sin, too. Don't lie about them in court. They're commands. That's not the difference between Old Covenant and New Covenant, like some people teach. Old Covenant, you had commands. New Covenant, totally unconditional. It doesn't matter what you do or how you think. (laughs) It's not true. The problem with the Old Covenant is that they were left with the book. The right book with commands, with His promises of salvation, and they were also left in their sin nature. That's the Old Covenant. So they had no ability to love God, to obey God. And you read the book, we call it the Old Testament, And the history of Israel demonstrates that. And that's why God wanted it that way. It's there for us as warnings. Don't be like that. He not only sent Jeremiah, He sent Ezekiel to prophesy about the same new covenant. In Ezekiel 36 verses 26 to 27, we read, And I the Lord will give you a new heart. And a new spirit, and I will put within you a new spirit, and I will remove the heart of stone, hard-heartedness, hating God. I will remove it from your flesh, and I will give you a heart, a flesh pliable, soft. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and to be careful. To obey my rules. That's the new covenant promise. In the old covenant, they're left spiritually dead in their nature. The new covenant that God promised is God's purpose to implant Himself by the Holy Spirit into the hearts of every new covenant person follow me the apostle paul he said it this way in the new testament if you turn to second corinthians chapter three verses five to six not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us But our sufficiency is from God. Now he's talking about Him and the Apostles. Now listen up. Our sufficiency comes from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives Life. So, Paul's saying, not an old covenant, a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Because if you just have the words without a heart, it'll kill you. And just read the Old Testament. It comes. And it condemns. The point that Paul is making is that they had the right book. They had the right God. They had the right rituals. And person after person after person still dies in their sin and awaits eternal judgment. And that was the predominant reality. Before Christ came. Let me just say this. Got to hear this clearly. Old covenant, new covenant. Today, ever since Jesus has come, in the religious world, in the Christian religious world, there are still old covenant type of people. And there always will be. Who exist in the church. Have the right book. Have the right message and even why it can happen because Jesus has come and the message goes forth and become members of churches. But do not have a changed heart in order to treasure Christ. To treasure God. To treasure the Gospel. To treasure it as their glorious salvation because they're not born again. They're old covenant type people. Existing during the New Covenant era. You can be an Old Covenant person. Got to get the air. Hear me now, okay? The difference between persons and eras now. You can be an Old Covenant person during the New Covenant era, meaning since Christ. Okay, now here's the key of this morning's message. And you could be a New Covenant person. During the Old Covenant era. Like Abel. Like Abraham. Like Noah. Like David. Like Moses. Like Jeremiah. Like Caleb. Like who knows how many people never listed in Scripture. During the Old Covenant era, there were New Covenant people. Which means they were born again. Indwelt by the Spirit. Given a new heart. So so here in our text in 2 Corinthians, when when Paul says it's a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Let me stop. You know how most Christians, at least in my experience, have interpreted that? Oh brother, to really follow Jesus is to just kind of close your eyes and hear the Spirit speak to you. And that's Christianity in a sense, ignoring the book, the letter. And that's not at all. That is not at all what Paul means in this text. When he writes, it's a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, because the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, he means that when the law of Moses, or when the promises, when the prophecies of God's holy word come to unregenerate person, an unregenerate heart, a person who has not been born again, it condemns them. It kills them. It either turns them into religious legalists who know not Christ. Let me just say this. Paul means, not just the law of Moses, but today, when the message of Jesus Christ goes and when that message goes to people, church members, churchgoers in the christian culture profess to be christians and that message comes week after week to hearts that are not born again that's what he means by the letter but when the holy spirit comes in why? because he says for the letter kills but the spirit gives life when the Holy Spirit comes into the heart and changes it through new birth what that means is now the same letters the same words same sentences and propositions and theological truths right there now instead of condemning you or killing you are life you're like I can't believe it could be true but it is true and you taste, you see the written word of God is precious to the soul. That's a new covenant person. So, keeping the idea before Christ, after Christ, before the day of Pentecost, after the day of Pentecost, we'll come to next week. Keeping this idea of eras, time periods in mind. I want you to turn to the Gospel of John. And let's consider what we read here for a moment. John chapter 7, starting with verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in Me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit will flow out of him. But that's exactly what He means, because look what John says to us. Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in Him were to receive, for as yet, the Spirit had not been given. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, taking everything I said, this is what I think Jesus is saying. The flood of the Holy Spirit, this outpouring, this welling up within a person, the flood waters of the Spirit flooding the earth has not happened yet. It hadn't happened in John 7 at this point. It had not happened in human history yet. That's what He's saying. And it has not happened because the inauguration of the King, Jesus, the centerpiece of all human history, hasn't been fulfilled yet until He goes to the cross and rises from the dead. That's what He's saying. In the era of time, the Spirit has not been given in that sense. Is what He means. Before God, the second person, became a human being and lived and suffered and died, was buried and was raised on the third day and ascended to heaven. And now that message of salvation, of how could David be saved, is clear because he has now historically done the work. Before that time, the Spirit has not yet been given in these flood waters yet. Does that make sense? In other words, let me give you an illustration. Before Christ came, the Holy Spirit is here. He's here working savingly. But it's as if there were a big dam and the water of the Spirit was released in small portions so that the people down river could water their crops and get something to drink and that's what we see sprinkled throughout the Old Testament. Remnant examples. But now when Christ comes in redemptive history, is accomplished in Him. And thus from that, the message that we preached, the gospel of Christ, now it's ready to go to the world. Then God, on the day of Pentecost, breaks open the dam waters of the Spirit, not just to the Jews, but to flood the earth the outpouring, the flood, the extent of the Holy Spirit regenerating sinful human beings through the message of Jesus Christ is unprecedented since the day of Pentecost. And He purposed it that way to wait until in history the Christ would come. And that now with the message the Damn waters breaking of the Holy Spirit would go forth for a more God-glorifying salvation. The gospel of Jesus' propitiation makes it clear why God, in the Old Testament, could save the people that He saved. Why He could forgive David's sins. Or Abraham's. Abraham was justified. By faith. He's our New Testament example. How in the world could you do that? Christ comes in history. And here's the answer why He could do it. Because of the cross of Christ. He was as a lamb, slain from the foundation of the world. This is how the Apostle Paul says just that. In Romans chapter 3, starting with verse 24, Paul writes... And we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation means God, by putting Christ forward, poured out His just anger against sins in Jesus He propitiated His wrath. He satisfied His justice. That's what it means. He put forward Christ as a propitiation by His blood in order for us now to be received by faith. Now this is what's stunning. Listen to what Paul says. This happening in 33 A.D. This was to show God's righteousness because He looked as if he were unrighteous, he forgave Abel. He deserved hell. He forgave Abraham, a sinner. You don't believe me? Just read about him. He forgave David, a worse sinner, at least that we know of. Recorded. How could he forgive him? How could he send Nathan the prophet and say, "David, the Lord has put away your grievous sin of adultery and murder"? Paul says, this is a problem. And he says the answer to the problem all along was Jesus. And in human history that He has now come, it has caused everything to become clear why God the Holy Spirit could come into an undeserving, spiritually dead human heart like King David and cause Him to be born again and be a believer because of Christ. Same reason for them back then as for any one of us on this side of Pentecost today. Let me finish it. Sometimes I never finish reading quotes. I get too excited. Paul says, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins before Christ came. And it seemed like a problem. But he says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So, before Christ came and accomplished redemption, God was patiently, purposefully, and in infinite wisdom writing a lesson book. You call it the Old Testament. The Hebrew Scripture. He at that, according to God, needed to happen the way it happened and be recorded the way it was recorded. And that lesson book was not just for the Jews, but it was for the nations, the Gentiles. You open up the Old Testament and it's a gift. It's filled with warnings Don't be stubbornly, hard-hearted like they were. Be like the remnant. Be like David, not like Saul. Remember the Babylonian captivity. And so, this book, when Christ comes, is there already. And it goes with the message of Christ. The book is the context for Christ. The book says, there was an Adam and an Eve and the human race fell. The book illustrates this sacrificial system to which Christ is the fulfillment. The book gives God's moral law. It gives God's promises. It gives warnings. It gives God's judgment against hard-hearted rebelliousness. And it gives all kinds of examples of those who walk by faith. God, during the Old Covenant period, was purposefully, lovingly, mercifully writing a book that would go to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. This is how Paul speaks when he writes in Galatians 4. I'll start with verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, okay, somehow things needed to happen from God's perspective when the fullness of time had come, then an angel appears to Mary. Then God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. And so, for most of us who are Gentiles, along with Jews, the remnant who are being even saved today, we have the book. I refer particularly to the Old Testament, to the Hebrew Scriptures, the stories, the warnings, they belong to us. And so, as we look into that book, into the Old Testament era, and we see, what we see is this, that every believer is a born-again person, just like you, if you're born again, filled with the Spirit, regenerated, however you want to say it. And that's why last week, remember, our text was John 3. That's why last week we saw Jesus say to Nicodemus, Are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand what I'm talking about, about new birth? How can you say that to him? The only reason he can say it to him is because this doctrine of new birth that we saw last week is not new. It was there in the Old Testament all along. Jesus' point to Nicodemus is, Nicodemus, don't you understand? It would have been impossible to have any believers in the Old Testament unless they were born again. New Covenant people during the Old Covenant. Period. Let I me mean, just to give you an example. If you just if you turn to the law of Moses, Numbers 14, verse 24, we read, you know the story, right? Ten. See, the majority are unbelievers. That's the point of the Old Testament. And then there's always a remnant. You got ten unbelievers, and then two, the minority are believers. Caleb and Joshua. God said it. We can take the land. God sent 12 spies. Only two believed. The rest were judged. But listen to what he says about one of them, Caleb. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, that's why he believed. Something changed. Or you jump to Numbers chapter 27 and here's the other spy, Joshua. Joshua. And we read in verse 18, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the Spirit. Not just upon Him, like my teachers used to teach me in my early Christianity. In Him He was born again. We will come then to Pentecost next week. But as I close, there's some lessons for us about what we're hearing this morning. First, we are to open up the Hebrew Scripture. That means your Old Testament. Open it up. And we see all kinds of lessons, in just a couple. That back then, the Holy Spirit was the teacher. Nehemiah 9.20 says, You gave your good spirit to instruct them. So you think, I'm on this side of Pentecost. And in the old era, before the floodwaters of the Spirit, God the Holy Spirit taught His people, His remnant. He taught them how? Through the prophets, through the law, and through causing their hearts to be born again. Now, if that's true for them, pre Christ, how much more true ought it be for believers today, post Christ, post the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, that He is our guide and He is our teacher? You remember the sermon two weeks ago? The Holy Spirit has spoken, He taught, it's written. That means part of the essence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is not walking off to some park and sitting under a tree and closing your eyes and hope He speaks to you. It means read what He wrote. It means turn to the sentences that He put before you. And it means something, second thing, about that. If you're just left with that, you're doomed. So you, while reading, while in church right now this morning, while listening to an mp3 sermon and with a Bible in front of you, You say, God, soften my heart to hear and believe and trust and repent and be moved by the Word. It's those two things. Because if He taught them then, how much more will He teach us this side of Christ? And what that means is, if you're right now, this morning, if you're bored at this moment, with this sermon and you're bored with your Bible you're bored with prayer it means you need to press in and stop being drunk with the world You need to covet desire even when you feel no desire. Pray for desire of the Holy Spirit to infill me. We'll come to this in the weeks to come. By singing songs. By thinking about what you're reading. By praying. In other words, the spiritual discipline. You know, I. You know, I. The, the, this church hates legalism, and sometimes I think people misinterpret what that means to something utterly unbiblical, which is what we do as Christians a lot. Because I have experienced people coming from what I would call horrific legalistic backgrounds, just totally just mess the gospel up so much and. And everything's just, you know, what you do, and God gets happy because I did, did, did. And then some will go, oh, no legalism, terrific. And it interprets, it doesn't matter if I go to church. It doesn't matter if I go here. It doesn't matter if I read my Bible that much. It doesn't matter how much I drink in TV as opposed to God. It doesn't matter, it doesn't matter because I'm free. And that's not Bible. And that's not what I teach. The letter kills. Legalism kills. It will slaughter people and it needs to be dealt with and done away with. The answer to your salvation is the Spirit. And part of what it means to be a sinner being saved by grace is that you understand the necessity for spiritual disciplines. Which means I don't wait till I want to pray. I don't wait. Do I feel like going to church this morning? Do I feel like loving that brother? You say, I put things in place because I'm desperate to follow You, O Lord. And so you have your Bible time, your church time, your giving time, your loving others time, your prayer time. You put them in there because you understand what it means to be a New Covenant person. Secondly, secondly, if the Holy Spirit filled the saints of the Old Testament pre-Pentecost with boldness to seek power, to tell and proclaim, even if it meant danger, the truth of God. How much more post-Pentecost in this post-Christian pagan American culture do we believers need the power of the Holy Spirit to be bold. To stand up clearly in our culture and say no to the redefinition of marriage. And yes to the biblical definition of marriage between one man and one woman. To say no to slaughtering babies in the womb. And to say yes to life of these little human beings who are made in the image of God. The boldness to speak to unbelievers about the state of their soul and the judgment that is to come and that there's only one way for them to be saved from a horrific eternity and that's Jesus Christ. Oh, we need, I need the power Not just an idea, not just a theology of the Holy Spirit, the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Like the Old Testament saints, like Micah, who said, as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, in order to declare to Jacob his transgressions, and to Israel his sins. No wonder Jesus says to His timid disciples, Wait. Just wait. Wait in Jerusalem until I send the Spirit. Until you receive the power from on high. And the Holy Spirit empowers now not just kings and priests and prophets, but as Acts will make clear, little girls, little boys, men and women How else are any of us going to stand for truth and witness to unbelievers and to live differently from a godless culture and minister to one another within the church through love? If pre-Christ, pre-Pentecost people, they were born again, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit, then how much more ought we pay attention to what the Holy Spirit has recorded about them for the encouragement of our life? And Serge, as you come up, I'm going to close with the way the New Testament wants us to view these and be encouraged by these persons in the Old Testament from Hebrews 11 as we are preparing our hearts to receive the blood and the body of Christ. became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some, by faith, were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, pre-Christ, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised." Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Father, oh yes, by the infilling, the presence of your Holy Spirit, you have been working. And may you continue to work as we sing now and receive in our hands the cup and the bread and hold it and prepare to pray over them and partake together. Would You work in Your mighty ways. Would Your Word now by Your Spirit continue to cut, to judge, to convict, to comfort, to encourage, so that by the time we're done with this communion service, the heights of our joy by the person of the Holy Spirit, will be sensed in power